Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. And if you didn't hear last week's sermon or just forgotten what two weeks ago was all about, the point is that Lent is this really interesting, mysterious, and sometimes can be really weird thing. And so sometimes it can be hard for us to enter into Lent or to understand what we're supposed to do when we get there. But I wanted to say that, and want to help you understand that the lessons of Lent are already hidden away in your life. There's not anything brand new we have to add. What we need to discover is what is already here. That is what Lent is is supposed to do. That's what the church is supposed to do, is to show us ourselves. And so to say that you may not get Lent, but since we're in the middle of Lent, there are things inside of you that you do get that are good and valuable. Last week, last week, two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that you may not understand Lent, but I bet you understand suffering. We talked about the suffering of Jesus as he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. We talked about the clarity that suffering can give us as we move forward in our life. Suffering is just a part of who we are. That doesn't mean it makes us any less spiritual. It's a part of who we are, and God is moving in and amongst that. If you didn't hear it, we invite you to check it out on the podcast. But let me hit you with the thesis for this week right off of the bat. You may not know about Lent but I bet you're fascinated with Jesus. I'll say it again. You may not know about Lent, but I bet that you are fascinated with Jesus or at some point have been fascinated with Jesus. Now, some of you look back at me and say, well, I'm not sure that it's true. I know it wasn't true last week because that was daylight savings time and the fascination for Jesus goes down about 10% on daylight savings Sunday. But there is a question, is that true? Are we still fascinated with Jesus? As I was floating around just in the past week, and again, I get stuff that just shows up in my inbox all the time. There were three things that showed up in my inbox. I'm like, that's a problem. The first was a study done by the Episcopalian Church, and they had put out an internal study to the Episcopalian, so it has nothing to do with anybody else but them. But they put out a study just on religious sort of attitudes and investments, and the data in the Episcopalian Church, I'm not picking on them, I bet this is pretty consistent across, But it said that 17% of Episcopalians say that Jesus is not important in their lives. I was looking for like 3%. I was like, yeah, okay, I can believe 17% feels like a lot for any body, any larger church body that says we are a body oriented around the person of Jesus. I just thought that number sounded crazy high. It's like, my goodness, what's going on? And then I had to double back and be like, you know what, that's probably true for the United Church of Christ as well. So I'm not picking on them, but saying that number is surprising. Another number I read is that 34% of Christians read their Bible at least once a week. I'm not even talking daily. 34% read it once a week, which means that 66% don't at all. <clears throat> we were talking in the Priory this morning, just sometimes this loss of fascination with the Bible. And I'm like, eh, that's, that's not great for us. And then finally, 43% of Americans are members of a community of faith. Did you hear what I said? Not 43% of members are not. I said 43% of Americans are members of some kind of a community of faith, not even Christian ones, which means that 57% of people are not. 
That number, again, struck me as odd. I know that number's going down. I didn't realize it had gotten that low. These are not statistics to the nation. We're not here to scream and rail about how depraved the culture is. These are statistics of the church. And when you hear them, you might say, you know what, we've gotten bored with Jesus. And by extension, because we're bored with Jesus, we're bored with the book that has revealed Jesus to us, this thing that we call the Bible. And as I tweeted to somebody who posted these statistics, I said, in terms of the decline in religion in the country, I said, folks, the call is coming from inside the house. The problems are not with the culture. The problem is inside to us. And with this being the case, with our commitment and focus on religion of any kind, what we have seen alongside of this sort of decline in religious life is a rise in what you might have heard called deconstruction. I wonder if any of you have heard of this word, deconstruction. It's, it's kind of a buzzword going on right now. It's kind of a hot word. But it's something that is going around as you're interacting with religious spaces. And so I wanted to talk about it for a second. I have a lot more to say about this. I may do a whole series on this later in the summer. But I wanted to talk about it now because it so often comes up in the context of Lent. You're like, Pastor, what is deconstruction? Deconstruction, the best, the best definition I can find of it, is that it is a crisis of Christian faith that leads to a reevaluation of Christianity or sometimes leads to an abandonment of it entirely. That when faith starts to shake at its core, when there's a lack of wonder, a lack of interest, that we start to step back and say, well, wait a second, is it everything that we said it would be? Is Jesus everything we said it would be? Has the church been everything that it promised it would be? And sometimes that causes us to massively reevaluate how we come to faith or it causes us to abandon it entirely. Deconstruction says that the structures, institutions, practices we've built to be the bones of a life of faith are no longer sufficient for ourselves or for our culture. And this process is going on everywhere. It is not limited to a generation, so please don't come to me and say, well, yeah, it's all those terrible young people who are leaving church. No, 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 this is a much larger, broader kind of thing. It, it's... it's it's across generations, it's across denominations. All of us are saying, wait a second, what is going on in the life of faith now? But here's what I want you to hear about this. Is that how we respond to deconstruction, how we respond to those who are asking really deep and really serious questions of faith, says more about us than it does about those going through deconstruction. Because for some, deconstruction is kind of embraced as this way to rage against the oppressive structures of religion. And it becomes this sort of cultural cry of, let's burn it all to the ground, it's going down, let's take it down with us. For others, it is viewed as yet this other grave threat. You're asking serious questions. You must have little faith. Those are not the right questions to ask. You've just got to believe more. And the more we hear people asking serious questions, we're like, yeah, well, the whole world's going to hell. Regardless of where we fall in this spectrum, whether it should be embraced or whether it should be rejected entirely, again, it says more about us than it does about the people asking questions. But it is not a shock to me that deconstruction has risen as fervor for Christ inside the church has eroded in the places that were built to proclaim his name. 
But here's what surprises me about deconstruction, is that you're still here. I am not surprised anymore that people ask hard questions. What continually surprises me week to week is that people keep showing up. That's what blows me away. There's a lot of reasons we come to a place like this. Probably as many reasons as there are souls that are engaging with us today. But we keep coming back with all of our doubts, with all of our brokenness, with all the uncertainty of the world around us. We keep coming back because there's something about Jesus, right? Jesus still seems to matter. And the truth of the matter is the crucifixion of Jesus remains the most important thing that has ever happened in history. Simply because of the church, that, the church and the culture that came from it. The crucifixion is the most important thing that has ever happened. And we keep showing up because there's something about that guy, right? And as I've listened to stories of deconstruction, in fact, as I've told my own story of deconstruction, and yes, I have gone through my... That's how I came to the United Church of Christ, was not because I was looking for a better faith, I was looking for a deeper one. As I've listened to the stories, what I found is that deconstruction often arises where disillusion with the church may be, yes, but more often deconstruction happens where fascination with Jesus is alive. So I should just want to, I want to get back to figuring, I want to understand Jesus, I want to be with Jesus, and if i got to shed the whole church to do it, I'll do it. I'm not sure we need to shed the whole church, but that impulse to say, I just want more of Jesus, that rings true to me. <clears throat> so what if, friends, if deconstruction is neither to be embraced or rejected, but rather simply understood? What if deconstruction can be a way of creating faith, not necessarily destroying it? What if the questions that the world is asking and the questions many of you are asking, sometimes out loud and sometimes in the quiet of our hearts, what if those questions that are pointed right at the hard parts of faith are to be honored rather than condemned? And even more so, what if deconstruction in the life of the church isn't just a modern phenomenon? What if it's always been around? What if it's not new? And I'm here to tell you, deconstruction is not new. Enter Nick at night. Nicodemus. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard this story read. I didn't even bother to look. It probably shows up in the lectionary later. We may end up doing this story all over again in a couple of weeks. I'll try to go around that. I apologize for that. But I said, this is the story I want to tell today. Because we get Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Now, I have always heard Nicodemus coming to Jesus in my own head. I talk about headcanon a lot. I have always heard the tone of Nicodemus coming in respectful and curious tones. I don't take him as somebody who's trying to, you know, he's trying to get into a fight with Jesus. I take him as somebody who's really wondering. He's serious about Jesus, and he's wondering about the questions that are in his heart, but he comes at night because he's mortified to ask them. This should ring true for a lot of us. Am I allowed to ask these questions? People told me I'm not allowed to say this. People told me he's a bad dude. Am I allowed to talk about this? But he comes. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi, he honors him with a title. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Here's what he's saying about his soul. And he's using sort of elevated academic language to cover over the emotions that he's feeling. What he's saying is, something's up with you. Something doesn't make sense. 
So something is amiss because there is now some new religious data in the world which has come, which is making it difficult for me to understand the place where I sit. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's educated. By all accounts, he's super educated. He's academic elite. And in doing so, he studied all the text. He studied all the data. And he's got a good grasp of that. I mean, none of us ever wrap our arms around entirely, but he's got a good grasp of that. And he's going, Jesus, you keep introducing this whole new set of data. You're not a traditional rabbi. You're doing healings. You're breaking, you're breaking the religious laws sometimes. He's like, there's this whole new set of data, but it seems pointed towards God. I can't figure this out. There's something about you, Jesus, is what he's saying. That is driving me crazy in a wondering, beautiful way. It's like, I got to know more. So let's talk. What he's saying is it doesn't square with my convictions. It doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. Now Jesus, ever to the point, skips over all of that. And he says to him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Now, first, here's what I want you to hear. First thing, Jesus does not condemn Nicodemus for his questions. He doesn't say, you've got to leave the community that you're a part of to come be a part of the community that I am, and then I'll give you all of the information. No, no, no. He honors that question. He wants to get right to the point. But that's just the thing. He has an answer. He has an offering. He has a perspective he wants Nicodemus to engage. And for those of us who are deconstructing we cannot come with a sense of superiority that somehow our questions, our concerns, our doubts have so tied the faith up in knots that no one intelligent could ever believe it as if we finally unlocked the door and we finally made religion nothing at all. No, no, no. For those of us who deconstruct from time to time, Jesus has answers for us. Jesus has answers for our questions. We need to be faithful to listen to those answers. But Jesus' point here is to be duplicitous. He said... You have to be born from above, which, in Jesus' language, is the exact same language as to be born again. Now, you might have heard that use in our own religious language, this idea of being born again. But how Nicodemus hears that tells us more about Nicodemus than it does about Jesus. And this is the pattern of Jesus. He's always going to turn it back on us. He's always going to be examining us, forcing us to look inside to see who we are and where we're coming from. And so we see the mistake, right? Nicodemus heard that very literally. Like, how are you supposed to be born from above? And he literally says, like, how are you supposed to go back and be born again? And it's odd. It's a totally understandable position from Nicodemus' place. And it's completely within the bounds of his experience. But Jesus clearly doesn't mean this. And again, for those deconstructing, Nicodemus, one of the first things that he messes up is that he's constantly judging Jesus' words from his own experience, from his own knowledge base, from his own skill set. And if we constantly have to evaluate Jesus according to ourselves, we actually set ourselves up as the box that we're trying to force Jesus in. But Jesus isn't about being forced into boxes. Jesus wants to call us out of our box to see something bigger. And that's what he does with Nicodemus. He says, Nick, let's go deeper than that. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. He's not criticizing flesh. He's giving a truism. He says flesh gives birth to flesh. It's the same basic idea of you reap what you sow. You 
plant wheat seeds, you'll get wheat. Flesh gives birth to flesh. What he's saying is our reality gives birth to more of our reality. This is what humans are and do. Much of that is nice. It is praiseworthy even. But if we are constantly submitting Jesus to our own standards, if we force Jesus into our own understanding, we will simply get more of what we've already got. If we come to Jesus with hardcore skepticism and we examine Jesus, what we'll get is more hardcore skepticism. If we come with rage towards the church and we bring that, then often what gets pumped back out is more rage about what, about what the church may be or where it is. This is where your fascination, as open as it is or as crusted over as it is, comes into play. We don't believe that Jesus is here simply to give us more of what we've already got. We believe that Jesus is bringing something new that is underneath all of this. And it's got to come from outside of us. And that's why, we're at Jesus. that's why we've come to Jesus. And that's what Jesus is about to say to Nick. He says, you've got to be born of water in the Spirit. He says, you've got to be born anew. You've got to be born from above. And he says, born of water, yes, in that we might hear the waters of baptism, and surely we should hear those echoes. But baptism will take its own cues from other stories earlier in the Bible. As the people walk through the waters of the Red Sea, from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the wilderness. And what he's saying is that they didn't just get a new occupation or a new address. They got a completely different way of seeing the world. Those people had moved from slavery where they were oppressed to freedom to live fully and completely themselves as children of God. In the same way, you and I walk from slavery to the powers of sin and death as we follow Jesus into the power of life, justice, mercy. Baptism is not just this dunking, not just an initiation into a religious community, but is a completely new way of seeing the world. The Spirit blows where it will, and it will not be confined to such rigid things as we have already constructed. Jesus is saying, look, I, want, I honor that fascination, I honor those questions, but I'm going to call you out of them to something deeper and bigger. Jesus' problem with Nicodemus is that he's the leader in one of Israel's most prestigious and faithful religious organizations, and he cannot understand that the Spirit matters, that God will not be confined. His own institutions, Nicodemus's, whatever they were, had begun to layer over the beauty of Israel's stories, that it ceased to call forward a more just and generous world. And we should pay attention, church, that we do not do the same thing. That church does not become a layering, does not become a layer of dust over the beauty, the story of Jesus that is at the core of who we are. And as he calls Nicodemus from where he is, he cracks open Nicodemus' imagination, and all of a sudden, Nicodemus begins to see there's something much bigger than he thought. And then Jesus gets to the heart of it. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus remembers the story when the people were being bit by snakes because they had, they had <clears throat> not been obedient to God. And there was a whole bunch of snakes going around. Like, take a snake, put it on a pole, lift it up, and if you look at the pole, you'll be healed. Well, that image becomes the cross, where Jesus is lifted up, and all who look to Jesus on the cross are now healed, are now set free to become who they are called to be. And it's with that image in mind that Jesus gives us these famous words, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Strip it all away, if we must. 
ask all the questions, get rid of it all. But at the core, we will find Jesus lifted up on the cross, and he's there because he loves us. And and in the cross, we are born anew to see the world the way that Christ sees it, bigger and more spectacular and more dynamic and more of God's activity than we ever suspected. Nicodemus discovers that his institution, his training, his situation in life couldn't and wouldn't spur his soul to the proper depths like Jesus did. And maybe we can take some, some solace from that. Sometimes, if we're struggling with heavy questions, it's okay to ask those questions. Jesus will honor that. And Jesus is calling us. He says, whatever we have to do to get to the person of Jesus, he says, I want you to come. Now, he's not going to make it always easy on us. There are questions. There are things. He's calling us. He wants something out of us. Yes. But Jesus is inviting us deeper into the mystery of his cross, his resurrection, and his kingdom. And if we need an end to the story... Did Nick's life really crack open? Did he really see things differently? Well, yeah. Because after Jesus died, it was Nicodemus who took him off the cross. His fascination was a lifetime. And it was Nicodemus who put him in his own tomb. Fascinated as he was, honoring that life even as it had come to an end, Nicodemus' life was changed because of the questions he asked, because of the deconstruction that he did of his own tradition. And he remains one of the faithful to show us a way of faithfulness, even in the midst of difficult times. And so as we have been welcomed to ask questions, so we should also welcome the questions of others and our own questions. Let's let our fascination with Jesus win over this idea that we've got to be certain about it all. And in doing so, may we find the wonder of Jesus at the core of it all. And may we brush off some of this dust that sometimes gathers, that we might see the beauty of Jesus shining forth from us and from churches wherever they find them, communities of faith wherever we find them. May they shine bright with the love of Jesus Christ.